1: Thank you so much for being here. And just to reiterate a bit of things, we're so grateful to have Dr. Julie Braciszewski who's gonna be our presenter tonight. We're also gonna have some opportunities for all of you to provide um, some feedback and some, some, um, also some questions. Uh, please make sure to ask your questions um, uh, in, the, um, in the chat. We know that we have people here uh, on the call who have background in child psychology and also some clinical practices that are allied, if not completely um, uh, cognate. And so please make sure to uh, feel free to share out of your own expertise and out of your own experience when that time comes. Um, I'm gonna open us with prayer. And then I've asked Glennis Williams, our Director of Marketing and Communications to uh, offer a, a kind of bio for Dr. Julie. And then after the presentation, I've asked the clergy to kind of lead us with some questions and then we'll open it up and we'll close somewhere around uh, 8.30. Um, I am so grateful that we have this opportunity uh, for many reasons. One of which is that early on in this pandemic, I picked up a book, um, Stephen um, uh, Tyler is his name, it's Taylor. And he wrote on the psychology of pandemics. Dr. Julie was a panelist for that discussion. And one of the things that he wrote was that the, the shadow, psychologically speaking, of a pandemic lasts many, many months and years after the pandemic itself passes. And we certainly have that as a challenge today as we seek to emerge from this pandemic, hopefully, um, uh, reintegrate into. Uh, into the new normal that we're dealing with. Just to get us started, I'm going to do a quick prayer. And um, this is going to be for, um, for strength and confidence. Uh, f- um, and, and, and without further ado, let us pray. Mighty God, giver of life and health, comfort and relieve all of those challenged by serious and chronic Mental and emotional illness. Give your power of healing to those who minister to their needs, that they may be strengthened in their weakness and have confidence in your loving care. We've asked this in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, without further ado, I turn it over to Glennis and then to Dr. Julie.
2: Hi everybody, I'm Glynis Williams, our new Director of Marketing and Communications, um, and I am going to introduce Dr. Julie Brachoszewski. Dr. Julie is a practicing clinical psychologist as well as owner and clinical director of Monarch Behavioral Health in Bloomfield Hills. In addition to providing direct care to children, adolescents, and families, Dr. Brachczewski provides professional development for community agencies, schools, and businesses. She is often a contributing guest on media outlets such as national public radio and Metro Detroit news programs. Dr. Brachczewski is passionate about translating psychological and neuropsychological research into direct care, providing research-based assessment and therapy while addressing important cultural and contextual factors. After earning her bachelor's degree at the University of Michigan, Dr. Braciszewski completed her master's and doctoral education at Wayne State University. She went on to complete pre-doctoral internship at Hawthorne Center in Northville, Michigan, and postdoctoral studies at Brown University, Warren Alpert School of Medicine. The desire to be close to family, as well as contribute and serve in Metro Detroit, brought Dr. Braciszewski back to Michigan, where she founded Monarch Behavioral Health. When not providing clinical care or consultation, Dr. Julie in, is enjoying time with her partner, her two daughters, and her two feisty cats. Without further ado, Dr. Brakazuski. Hi,
3: everyone. It's so great to see you. As I scroll through, I see so many familiar faces uh, personally and professionally, and I'm so grateful that we can gather in this way to talk about something that I am obviously very passionate about, both professionally do it day in and day out. And also personally, um, because I have two little ones Um, and kind of going through this pandemic, obviously, the entire time, you know, keeping an eye on mental health and all that that encompasses. Um, And now that we're at this new phase of the pandemic, where many of us, thankfully, have been able to be vaccinated, um, kind of shifting into a restore and recover um, and rehabilitation mode of the pandemic moving forward. Um, We cross our fingers that we're there and that we're moving towards it. Um, And so we can focus on parenting towards this tail end and and past the pandemic and what we can do for our younger kiddos as well as teens. Um, And so as we talk today, I'm going to run through these kind of different pit stops. Um, We're going to talk about... First, we'll start at that like satellite view where we talk about international and the domestic impact of COVID on the well-being of children. Um, And then we're going to talk about the impact of the pandemic on youth. These specific, because we could go on and on and on, really, we could meet. Every day for a month and keep talking about it, but narrowing it down to academic, emotional, behavioral, and social realms of mental health, well being, and how it's affected children, and kind of within each of those, the path forward what we do for parenting strategies and also those of us um, that work in the mental health field or our teachers, um, uh, what we can do to support mental wellness with what we know has gone on in the pandemic and what we might predict might happen moving forward. Um, So to to zoom out that satellite view, looking globally, um, we had a really fortunate last about like decade and a half in which um, we saw UNICEF gathers data all over the world about child well-being. um, And we saw positive indicators of child well-being grow year after year after year after year. And of course, during the pandemic, what we saw is a lot of the progress shifted backwards. it, this, you know, economics is not my area of specialty, but we know that that drives child wellness and well being. Um, and so, depending on how different countries respond to the pandemic um, uh, medically, mental health wise, and also economically, um, will really impact kids globally. Because um, we saw the increase in poverty, malnutrition, housing insecurity, and certainly, of course, school was disrupted around the planet. Um, And it's a bit of a unique situation in that schooling and academics so disrupted and children's daily routines were so disrupted in a way they really haven't been globally all at once ever before. Um, And when we think about, when we zoom a little closer in to the United States, um, we we see that obviously, we see these economic indicators of joblessness and over 60% of people are reporting a job transition, which is it's astronomically huge. Um, some people's duties and roles have changed, obviously. Many people have lost their jobs. Um, those pressures tend to increase stress and conflict at home, including domestic abuse and housing insecurity, um, which obviously leads to food insecurity as well. And then we also know, which I know they're gonna talk about two weeks from now, so I won't get too much into it, but substance use and abuse and addiction has skyrocketed during the pandemic. All of those pressures and economic economic pressures really impact child well-being. Um, And we'll talk, we'll kind of loop back around to that again. So in order for us to understand um, how the pandemic has affected the kids in our immediate vicinity, either our own kids or the kids we teach, it's good to take kind of a global and also domestic view around How is child well being in general to understand a more personal view of it? What we also saw is that kind of exactly what Father Bill was saying is that medical health is mental health and mental health is medical health. So, in our very, you know, westernized, society, we really like to put a divider on the middle um, and say, this is medical health and you go to a medical doctor for this, and this is mental health and you go to a mental health provider for mental health difficulties. What we have found and what the pandemic has shown us in a way that has not been so clearly shown to us before is that when a medical emergency occurs, it directly impacts mental health. So we have seen, um, mental health difficulties in the percentage population-wide, kids and adults have soared. And we've hit a bottleneck of service provision. Um, So it has created a mental health emergency. And when we look at um, the United States specifically, With kiddos, we see there has been a 24% increase in kids aged 5 to 11 for emergency room visits related to mental health, and it's even a little higher for kids 12 to 17. And up here with the um, older kiddos kiddos, uh, transitioning to adulthood, 18 to 24, about a quarter of all 18 to 24-year-olds reported considering suicide the month before the survey, which was actually done October to April um, last year, uh, 2020. Um, And so that is striking. That is a vast increase. Um, And what we notice is that although we're super grateful that we can transition to things like this, Zoom, and, and be able to provide services over telehealth, um, there was a sharp decrease in usage of mental health services um, at the beginning of the pandemic, Then there was a bit of a surge and now it has leveled off. We also see particularly important um, for For children, is that there was a sharp reduction in IEP services. So, individualized education plan, special education services, and also 504. um, So, accommodations that don't change the curriculum, but are support services for kiddos. Um, As as was expected, um, schools really struggle to provide. IEP and special education services across the board. It's super challenging to implement that. And what that means is there's a significant portion of kiddos that weren't getting learning support, um, occupational therapy, which is things like fine motor difficulties and even gross motor movement and physical therapy. The kids actually get through school, speech language pathology. Um, when kids are having difficulty expressing themselves, we know emotional and behavioral disorders increase, and um, behavioral intervention and support, um, direct behavioral intervention and support. And those kiddos that are most at risk, um, it's super stressful for parents to be trying to provide all of this at home amidst the pandemic. Um, So, what we find is it's actually staggering. The domestic view, um, the United States, we have an estimated 3 million high-risk kids that didn't report to school fall 2020. So 3 million. And those high-risk kids are often kiddos that are homeless um, or housing insecure, kiddos in foster care, those with disabilities um, or English as a second language. And so when we do district surveys, um, somewhere between 5 to 20% didn't log on um, or engage at all in spring 2020. Um, so that is very concerning. And about a third of kids in the U.S. didn't have reliable access to virtual schooling. So talk a little bit about what that might mean more personally in a moment then when we kind of zoom in from the United States view to our beautiful state of Michigan, um, what we know so far is there's an estimated, um, 77 just above that thousand high-risk kids that are not in school. And so for reference, that fills about three quarter of the big house of U of M stadium. That's a lot of kids in our state that have not been in the school context in a year or over a year. Um, And we know in Michigan, there is a large mental health service provision gap um, between, so what is needed versus what is available as it relates to racial disparities. Um, And so we have high risk kids and and kiddos and BIPOC communities that are not getting what they need. And as a community and as a state, we will feel those repercussions for years to come and, and we can proactively go after them. So I know more research will occur and we will be looking at that research to inform next steps and what we do, but it's good to start here. When we think about academic functioning, we also then wanna zoom down to, okay, well, what about my own kiddos? What about the kiddos like in, in our parish community, um, You know, in our surrounding Metro Detroit community? And so almost all kids experience education disruption, unless you were a homeschooler and you just kept homeschooling, your school was disrupted. Um, So what we expect, um, because we can kind of look back in history to look forward, during disasters, there's always um, a, a lag in learning. And so what we're estimating based on some data that has been gathered is that kids will come to school next fall was somewhere between 40 to 70% of what they would have normally learned. And so there will be this 60 to 30% gap of knowledge of skill attainment. Um, We'll talk a little bit about kind of red flags, things that you might look at, you know, in your own home with your own kiddos or the kiddos you're teaching. Um, And certainly the number of transitions that occurred in your school or in your home will really impact that. and so, you know, we saw lots of days out of school. Districts were all over the place last spring, if we remember that. Um, and then I mean, school to school, even within districts, school to school, there's a lot of inconsistency about the way in which education was delivered, virtually, platforms. Um, and for some districts, there is a lot of discontinuity around virtual, hybrid, how you quarantine, for how long, who's in person, when did it switch? Oh, my gosh there's so many variables. and But we do know that all of those transitions and all of those gaps will affect learning. And so we say, okay, where? Where in the learning process when we think of kiddos in school? And school and learning is part of mental health. And so these are really important factors to look at. We notice that kiddos in the kindergarten through second, really third grade, the fundamentals of reading and math, third grade is that period where you switch from learning to read to reading to learn. You then have to read your textbook books to learn the content. So we do find if kids get to third grade without solid reading skills, they fall behind in an exponential manner, uh, quarter to quarter through school and through high school. So It's so important that we notice if our kiddos are in that hot spot of kindergarten through third grade, that we really take note of their reading fundamentals and and where are they? And and we'll talk a little bit about other questions we can ask, um, but certainly getting a read on it from the teacher um, and and either sitting back and relaxing, knowing that you can communicate that to your teacher in the fall or doing activities to help usher them. Along, we also see the transition to middle school. It's a really important time educationally. Um, we see a lot more um, independent working behaviors are grown in that in that leap from fifth to sixth and sixth to seventh. A lot of written expression skill is laid on them, um, and certainly the foundations to high school math are learned in elementary, and middle, and then that transition to high school is huge, where you're doing more course content specific learning um, that may lead into college. So all taken all together, there are these hot spots in which fundamentals are are really built and then expounded upon in further grades. And we, we want to know if our kids are in those transition or those hotspots. And we also notice that there's a huge impact of missing milestones. Um, and that really impacts kids' mental health. Now, I think every school did their best with providing graduations last year, and certainly this year is a little different. Um, and also social functions that are milestones. Um, but that has really affected kids' mental health. And and many kids that were seniors last year that tried to launch into the world this year are really struggling. Um, and we can absolutely understand why. So in years to come, uh, based off previous data um, in Uh, disasters, we know there's going to be a lot of variability of where students come in in the fall. Some, you know, will have that 40% gain um, compared to where we would expect them to be. And, And some kids might catch up. Um, So there will be more variability in classrooms moving forward. And that will be a challenge for teachers, teachers that are already overburdened. um, Fundamental, like we talked about, fundamental skills might be affected. um, Significant reading and math losses for many kids. So those are reading and math losses are some of the most significant findings that came out of, um, for instance, Hurricane Katrina. Um, We saw a lot of slide and, a, and lack of progression. And so we wanna be very aware of where our kids are in reading and math and provide support services. And so we look at these variables, of, well, how much has my own kiddo been affected by this? we can look at number of transitions. I know my kids had three different transitions. When I worked and did a um, uh, um, uh, a teacher's um, um Professional development. When I did a teacher's professional development um, oh, like two months ago, I was shocked to find they had nine schedule changes in their district. Nine. Each time a kid makes a transition, they're having to relearn their entire schedule. It sets them off for sometimes days to weeks. And if you have nine, there's not very many stable weeks. So my own kids, um, you know, had at least three transitions. Um, Virtual schooling context: what was that environment like? Um, How long were they in virtual schooling? And um, you know, teacher effects. um, uh, Kind of dropping down a little lower: teacher ability to navigate and utilize technology. Um, It's a whole different world doing things virtually like this. I think we've all learned that. And in terms of a teacher conveying information and teaching kids how to think through a screen, it's extremely challenging. And certainly it's so important for us to know that district socioeconomic status is really important in that there's already an education gap between mid to high uh, SES uh, communities and lower SES communities, and that divide will grow. Um, And we as a community will really want to get in there and address that and provide support services throughout not just this summer, um, but other school breaks and summers, really moving forward for many years. This last factor, we'll circle back around to this again also, family stress, family conflict, family stress, family transitions. So important in predicting a child's academic functioning and the manner in which COVID may have impacted academic functioning, many parents shifted to working from home, and it was not possible to monitor their kids during school. Other families have been able to have caregivers come in and monitor to some degree. Um, I know for us, we had we we had my own parents come in. My mom has got a great story. I'm trying to teach my Evelyn over virtual. <laughs> she was so frustrated through the roof. And if she would have had to continue that and facilitating her first grade classroom uh, day after day after day, I don't think she'd be with us today. She could not handle it. It was so stressful for her. Um, And I don't think Evelyn learned much that day. So for families that had high stress, difficulty with the transitions, um, and difficulty administering virtual school for whatever period of time, it will definitely affect affect academic functioning. So what do we do? because we're here. We are thinking about parenting past the pandemic and we know academic functioning is a piece of child and teen mental health so we want to provide support services. Um, we want to ask teachers those questions of how a normal year Where would you expect my kid to be at? Do you feel that they've made the gains? in especially reading and math, like we said, that they were supposed to make, and what kind of summer enrichment would be appropriate, if at all. Because kids this year, more than ever before, really need this time off. They really need this time to reconnect socially, sometimes with their families, because when families are so stressed out, distance grows, and also with peers, with themselves and their own identity. So support services, yes. But we're thinking long haul here. It doesn't necessarily have to push in with services over the over the summer. Just means you know, if my kid makes it to sixth grade and they're really struggling in algebra, it may be because they didn't get rounding estimation in first grade. And so we can link delayed learning sometimes, and um, and kind of dropping down to the bottom here. Yeah, strap in for the long haul. So we want to take the view right now that this year may impact our kids' learning for years to come. And when we're feeling really frustrated a year, maybe two, maybe even three or four years from now, to revisit this very moment where you and I are together talking about this, this might be an effect of the pandemic and that we can provide support services. There are also in the middle of this brief academic assessment. If you're worried about where your kid um, has grown or not grown over the past year, we can assess for that. Um, you know, here at Monic behavioral health, but certainly other practices in the area also can provide a standardized assessment of reading, math, written expression, um, a lot of executive functioning, a brief kind of package of skills to understand where's my kid at compared to all other kids or thousands and thousands of other kids, their same age grade um, within the U.S. So it's not curricula bound. So it it, it speaks kind of beyond the specific school that they are in and more about age and grade standardized assessment. And so if you're really worried, really wondering, man, is my kid behind? We can look at that. We can look at that and put together a plan moving forward and and ways that we can communicate to teachers and educators moving forward to make their jobs easier because as we said there's going to be a lot of variability with students the next couple of years and if we can hand it over on a silver platter here's where my kid is struggling and I have the data behind it that's really helpful for teachers and administrators and certainly i going back up to IEPs kiddos that need extra support, kiddos that have learning challenges or developmental delays or neurodevelopmental disorders like ADHD, they may need their IEPs, individual education plans or 504 plans revisited and revamped earlier because of the pandemic. And and when you ask a school to revisit or meet about an IEP, you're supposed to do that within 30 days. And so you can even request it now and give teachers a heads up that you want to do it in the fall and it, it'll be kind of on their roster. So we, there's a lot of support that we can give. I mean, it doesn't have to be right this second. We can take a breather and have a bit of recovery and relaxation time and know that the support that we can give can be over many years, many quarters, um, and it will be really effective when we think about kind of transitioning to mental health effects, it's really helpful to be able to look back, to look forward. So to wrap our heads around the pandemic and the mental health experience of the pandemic um, on kids and teens, it is helpful to look at natural and man-made disasters in the past. Um, And so kind of for us today, as well as some other parenting seminars um, that I'm doing through the clinic here, We have reviewed all of the research literature, um, as much as we could find, regarding man-made and natural disasters and how that affects child mental health moving forward. Um, So these are some examples of different uh, natural man-made events. And to kind of coalesce the data, what we find is that... Many people aren't expecting this, but kids are at a greater risk than adults of developing psychiatric or mental health difficulties in response to a disaster. And this is in part because of this piece up here. They pose a higher risk for kids because kids have an inability to escape the danger or the stress outside of their parents or support systems. A kid can't say, I'm leaving and going to Acapulco. They can't do it not without parents, Um, I'm leaving and go to grandma's, even just going to a friend's house, a relative's house to decompress. Certainly older teens can do that, but kids cannot. Um, And so kids often feel helpless and hopeless. Um, And so when we look at child mental health, one really extremely important factor is parent mental health. The parent experience of a natural or man-made disaster, and certainly the pandemic, is super understanding how a child's mental health will be affected. So these, uh, a lot of the studies on um, natural disasters uh, occurred kind of like 80s, even early 90s, um, and really often looked at mom as the caregiver. Um, and, and things have shifted to much more equal distribution of caregiving um, between moms and dads. So I have mother, I put parent and the studies were done with moms, but uh, so in parentheses, mom, but really it's dad's do. Um, so, parents' response to the disaster was a predictor of post traumatic stress um, symptoms that a child would experience right after the exposure to a disaster, um, as well as years to come. And intrusive memories, so high degree of stress um, and changes of patterns of parenting. Well, I think all of our parenting patterns have changed. Let's be honest. I'm doing things I never would have done a year ago. And I think I've also developed some good parenting coping strategies over the last year. But for better or for worse, my parenting patterns have changed. And I'm sure your parenting, your teaching patterns, they've changed. Um, and so that accounts for some of the relationship between parent response and child mental health outcome. And there's this myth, um, and I know we were hearing this really early on of like, well, they'll just get over it. Kids are resilient and certainly they are. However, when we look at kids that respond to natural and man-made disasters with intense stress, behavioral or emotional disruption, what we find is that those effects last. They last for years and years. And so it is important that we get in there And we're helping with, like we said, the academic supports and the academic functioning and certainly the mental health functioning, because this myth of they'll just get over it, kids will get over it. It's just not true. We know that the immediate reaction to a disaster, and and that's measured in disasters like a hurricane or tornado, something that happens over the course of moments to days, and certainly this has been over a year now, which is still crazy to say, Um, that we know the effects, the mental health effects go out at least a year and a half or so. Loneliness and isolation is a big factor that that predicts depression moving forward. And as compared to other natural and man-made disasters, we know COVID has caused a lot of loneliness, a lot of loneliness and isolation, even in the most social of us. um, Remaining socially connected was difficult. And those adults and kiddos that early on in the pan- pandemic who find themselves more kind of introverted and we're kind of like, yes, this is my jam. I've been waiting for this. I don't have to talk to people. They were feeling amazing at first. They, too, are experiencing loneliness and isolation. And as we move, as we move out of this and we're able to gather again in person uh, with friends, with family, at religious institutions, at school, It's important to know that the effects of that loneliness and isolation do not just wash away clean. They do continue to affect uh, teens and adolescents um, or little kiddos and teens. They continue to move forward in some studies. um, Really, it is long out as nine or more years. It's really incredible. So. We come down to a study, the ACEs study, so the Adverse Childhood Events. It's a huge study with over 50,000 participants studying trauma. And we found that trauma impacts a wide range of life outcomes. Um, And so it's important to say, well, okay, so has the pandemic been traumatic? Well, the answer is yes and no, maybe. Because for some families and some kiddos, Depending on the degree of loss, transition, stress, conflict, thinking back to all of those economic indicators like housing insecurity, domestic violence and substance use, the effects of the pandemic for some kids absolutely has been traumatic. For some kiddos that have mental health challenges like OCD or um, ADHD, this time has been extremely difficult for them and might be experienced as traumatic. And for other individuals who have a lot of protective factors against trauma, they might kind of come out of this just with a little skid and a bump and get back up on their feet and experience um, immense resilience. And, And I wish that were true for everyone. But we do know that once stressed and once we accumulate traumatic stress, the activation of our body really affects our body and our brain development. And so this is one of those key pieces where we say mental health is medical health and medical health is mental health. They are one in the same. When we experience trauma or traumatic stress, it affects our brain and our body functioning and kids and teens development. And so we do you know, want to also acknowledge that when we experience something as traumatic, The percentage of people who move into adulthood with post-traumatic stress symptoms is much higher at between 34 and 51 percent to those who did not experience situations as trauma or have never had an adverse event, which is more like 3.4 to 20. Um, And so it's important that we acknowledge these effects of the pandemic might affect kids and adolescents over several years and even into adulthood. So it's great to be able to deal with them now. The first piece of how do we address mental health now is what are we even looking for? It's been over a year. We've been in a pandemic. What would this even look like in terms of mental health affecting a kid or a teen? So we know historically, looking back to look forward, we know historically when kids and teens um, experience traumatic events, we often see a subclinical presentation of mental health difficulties. So they might look like a little anxious or anxious about stuff that you're kind of surprised about. I'm seeing it in my own daughter right now. One of them um, uh, is big transitions with the end of school and saying goodbye to some care providers that we've had thankfully helping us out and big transitions. Still not a lot of socializing in our house because we are on the conservative end of that. Um, And so we're seeing one of my kiddos never before has had any fear of bugs. And right now, so terrified of bugs, waking up with nightmares about bugs. And and it seems unrelated. Um, But really, when we look below the surface, we can see it's likely the accumulation of pandemic anxiety, as well as all of these transitions going on. And certainly I'm seeing so many people come into my office with parents saying something's going on, but it's, it's not blaringly loud. They look really down and sullen. And that is a response. That's a traumatic response to a really difficult episode or period of time. Children often experience physical symptoms like fatigue, joint pain, um, stomach difficulties, gastrointestinal difficulties like constipation or diarrhea, um, feeling like their heart is beating so fast, um, and even kind of running and feeling like dizzy or like they're gonna pass out. Um, And they will complain of these, what we call somatic or bodily complaints. And it's actually an expression of the very biological processes of anxiety and the wear and tear it places on our body. And so, We also want to look for those somatic complaints as well as regression. So see when kids react to traumatic circumstances or natural disasters, research tells us, you can look for the own kids, your own kids' ages or kiddos that you work with, kind of the age band that they might be in on this table. Um, And we see regression. So we see kids that have gained a skill or a milestone often with intense stress, move backward. A step two, sometimes even three, kid that was fully potty trained all of a sudden wetting their bed. A kid that you know, was really separating easily from their parents goes back to having intense attachment anxiety. You might see really age discrepant behavior. So might've had a kiddo that when they were three or four had some like knockdown, drag out tantrums. And now they're like eight. They have not had a tantrum in two years. And now that you're reentering society, all of a sudden, boom, huge tantrums there might be a regression of behavior, milestones and regulation. And that's often what we see in kid and teen response to to disasters. Um, with teens, it looks a lot like decline in previous responsible behavior is what, is what they call it. And that's things like hmm, drive you nuts, like not emptying the dishwasher when they that's been their chore and one of their tasks for the last five years, and all of a sudden, they can't remember to do it. Sometimes it is also a decrease in independent behavior. So all of a sudden, they've been driving for two years, and now all of a sudden, they're afraid to drive, or they find it really difficult to go to the grocery store and, and execute a full list. So independent living behaviors that teens have gathered, that would be a regression for a teen. Um, We also want to look at, like we said, somatic or physical reactions, and certainly any of these physical reactions can happen as a result of a natural disaster traumatic event to any kid at any age. These in this um, table are parsed out by what is most common for that age band. Um, And certainly with younger kiddos, you know, infants through two and and three years old, we often see the control buttons. So sleep and eating and stomach distress. Um, When a kid feels out of control, one of the first things they go for is eating disruption. They get real narrow and picky um, or refuse to eat at meals. And it looks oppositional. And that's kids really trying to gain control over what is happening. And it's one of the only avenues of control they have. That is very common for younger kiddos. And we often see sleep disruption in that, again, medical health is mental health. When our stress hormones and the other biological processes around anxiety are chronically being set off, it is extremely difficult to settle down into sleep and move through those sleep stages to run sleep. And so we see with kids, all the way through adolescence though. Sleep disruption um, is something that we are commonly seeing. Um, and again, we get headaches, stomach problems, aches and pains. We also, of course, want to look at emotional and behavioral functioning. Um, and we see reactions to natural disasters and, and traumatic events. Um, so anxiety, increased fear, worry, nervousness, fidgeting, something that happens as a result of anxiety is also decreased executive functioning so kiddos who are anxious have a lot of difficulty paying attention organizing themselves following through on directions my gosh you give an anxious kid a three-part direction they might make it through part one certainly not two and three and so we see as anxious kids have a lot more difficulty following through with executive functioning and organizing their behavior and paying attention Um, So in addition to that, nervousness and worry, we see executive functioning decline in anxious kiddos. That also occurs with depression. Depression really puts on a mental fog and it makes it really difficult to solve problems. And again, executive functioning, we might see things like loss of interest in activities and kind of a withdrawal socially, maybe even further, um, and a withdrawal from things that our kid or teen might previously have felt really interested in. And certainly kind of like I talked about my kiddo, we see um, specific phobias sometimes come out that look unrelated, but are a kiddo expressing their general anxiety and their kind of their um, activation is getting funneled to a specific topic. We also see right now, um, which we'll circle back around to this, this re-entry anxiety. So we see in Michigan, we do know that the typical rate of symptoms um, of anxiety is about 7% at any given time. 7% of kids have a clinical level of anxiety. Right now, it's at 34%. Um, And this was actually October 2020. So this was a little while ago. Um, But what we would expect is that these rates will continue um, for a while. We also, depression symptoms are usually somewhere between three and 5% in the general population. And in Michigan, um, there was a report upwards of 22, another report said 40% of kids experiencing depressive symptoms. And so we want to get in there and and, and provide mental health supports right now, even though kind of end of school year and also yay, people are vaccinated so we can socially gather a little bit. What we know from looking back to look forward from our historical perspective, is that these symptoms often do not go away on their own. And one of the reasons that these symptoms do not go away on their own is because when we fear something, we avoid it. And when we avoid the thing, we feel an immediate sense of relief. I don't have to deal with that. But then our brain gathers evidence about how dangerous that thing is. And the perceived threat grows and grows and grows so that the next time we approach that situation or event, our anxiety is bumped up another notch. And then we avoid it again, which results in increased fear perception, bumps up a notch. And so you're seeing where I'm going around and around the circle. So this anxiety escalation cycle is part of why it is difficult For anxiety and depressive symptoms to just go away or remit on their own. Because we get in a cycle of avoiding the things that are triggering anxiety. And certainly, this is especially challenging in the current context because um, we have been told for a year to expressly avoid a lot of normal life situations. Do not bring your kids to the grocery store. Schools are closed. No socializing, no practices, no sports. Oh my gosh. We have all been removed for life from our normal life. And moving forward, trying to step into these contexts again, for some people, they are like, freedom, like it's just so exciting. And inside, they're feeling some anxiety. And the majority of people, between 60 and 80%, are reporting that they are feeling intensely anxious about stepping out into the world again. And this definitely applies to kids and teens because through this past year, we were told, and certainly it was dangerous to socialize and go to certain contexts, and we had to remove ourselves and avoid those things. The fear of being in those places and situations has built up, and now we have to step into those places. And so to combat that kind of for ourselves, but most importantly for our kids and teens, we can address reentry entry anxiety by, by something called exposure strategies. So with exposure, we organize the thing that we are afraid of. And we make a list of activities, which is formally called a fear ladder, and you rank them from the easiest to the most difficult. And then you do each activity, working really hard to label your anxiety. Where do you feel it in your body? Is it in your head? Do you feel it in your chest? Are your muscles tight? Are you sweating? You do each activity, label the anxiety, practice coping strategies, and work through the context until you're ready to work up to the next rung. And then you jump into that rung, and you do the next and the next, and it's in a controlled and purposeful manner. Um, you know, with with many people coming into the office right now, we have fear ladders around going to doctor's offices or going to the grocery store or being at certain social events um, and, and different even behaviors within the social events, standing close to somebody. If everybody is vaccinated, standing within three feet without a mask on and coping with the anxiety. Many kids and teens will need this type of ladder work where it's organized and controlled. And they, you have an agreement where I know you might feel distress and we're gonna try and stick it out, but also I understand it's distressing and we can leave and reapproach. It's controlled, and there's empathy and validation provided throughout. And empathy and validation in general are communication tools that as we move and we parent post-pandemically, we want to be labeling emotions because if we can name it, we can tame it. Strong emotions can be very disorienting, very disorienting. Do I fight? Do I flee? Do I freeze? What do I do? And so those strong emotions, if we name it, then we can link it to the behavioral motivation and do something with it. We can lead as parents, as educators through modeling, using our own examples that are, of course, um, uh, child appropriate, but talking about our own anxieties day to day um, and how we had to calm our body down to help our brain work clear and how we solve the problem and move through it. We want to normalize emotion labeling and normalize kind of what we call co-coping, where if you can say, okay, well, how could I have solved that problem today at work? And allowing your child or teen to give you ideas, they will be much more open to hearing your ideas when they present a problem to you. So as long as it's kid appropriate and they, it doesn't make them feel like they're more out of control co-coping and co-regulation really positive process. And we wanna use empathy statements conveying that you understand their point of view of them and emotion, as well as validation statements, expressing that their perspective, emotion and behavior is valid. And we wanna leave the butts out. And this is probably one of the more challenging, one of the more challenging strategies we'll talk about. Um, I find myself doing it on the daily with my own kiddos. Um, I know you don't wanna stop watching TV, but it's time for school. I got to take the butt, cut the butt. <sighs> I know this feels really uninteresting to you, but we have to do it anyway. So instead, I know it's tough to stop watching TV and rest in that moment. Oftentimes kids and teens, you will see them physically unravel a bit. Okay, you get it. You're not going to force me to do anything right now. We have to, we have to, as parents and sometimes educators, stop ourselves from going to the, the butt. next step and sit in the emotion so that we can regulate it. And then also we want to be post-pandemic parenting, both from little kids all the way up to teens, making time for child or teen centered activities. Um, And certainly I think this is something that at first when the whole world shut down people were really happy. They were spending more time doing board games, doing puzzles. There was a run on puzzles, kind of like toilet paper. You couldn't get a puzzle anywhere. And everybody was doing child and family centered activities. I do think, um, and research is showing us that as the pandemic has wore on and, and for a lot of people, work has just taken over the home context. It's been harder to spend one-on-one time with children in the home. Um, And so even just a five minute interval of time that is specifically labeled as like, this is our dad Luke time. This is our mom and Evie time, or this is our special time, or this is goof off time, having a special label where this is, this time has a name and it's a special time that we spend together and letting the child choose the activity, no matter how stupid it seems to you or how difficult it seems to you. I know a lot of parents actually really struggle with pretend play um, And and sticking with it, feeling like, oh, it's so boring. So give yourself a time interval. And you can even put a visual timer up um, to show that you're gonna do five minutes, 10 minutes, and let the child take the lead. And what that means is that you are doing descriptive commenting. So, you know, noticing what they're doing and describing it, but not asking questions, not imposing your own kind of character attributes or even like plot themes. And yes. It feels super awkward at first. Um, Unfortunately, we lose our play skills pretty early in life. And so to focus on child and teen mental health, because this can take form in teen years, things like, I know it might seem like torture, but asking your teen to teach you how to play their video game and spending time doing that, sometimes teens find it hilarious how incompetent we are, Um, (laughs) or joining your kid on their Minecraft server and sharing that time. And if you can, like sit right next to them and look on their screen and have them show you stuff on your screen. And that time dedicated together where you are interested in hearing and interested in having them lead, it helps kids feel a lot of pride. Very, very important. It helps facilitate that attachment bond that is the most important resilience factor in the space of trauma um, and stress and conflict, attachment is everything. And so that's an opportunity to bump up those feelings of positive attachment. Um, and, and also a kid during a child center activity feels very in control. One thing that almost all kids have experienced during this time period is a absolute lack of control. I know you probably have to I certainly have who can control a pandemic surely not us and kids have so many more steps removed also kids and teens feel so out of control all of their routines overnight oh what do for us i think it was march either 17th or 23rd oh you're not going back to school and so these tiny swatches of child centered time help kids feel heard seen connected and in control especially after more than a year of feeling out of control. We can also really use a resilience factor, identity consolidation and confirmation. So kids who feel connected to a group fare better in the face of strong stress um, and intense stress. So affiliating with a group like a religious institution or a dance group or sports club, um, gaming groups, it's incredibly important to develop identity and to have a group affiliation. And that can be very protective and in the face of stress. And so as we are able to move about the world a little bit more and join groups and be part of groups or be part of virtual groups also, that is really very healthy and helpful in the face of mental health difficulties. And kind of circle back around to this in that, um, kind of like we said before, when we look back to look forward, the historical perspective, if you yourself as a parent or a teacher are experiencing mental health challenges, then your primary duty is to get support for yourself. Because we know one of the biggest, most predictive factors of child well-being outcome of intense stress is parent well-being and parent mental health. And so affording yourself the time and the space and the resources. To get mental health support is supporting your child. And you can see (laughs) the the put on your own oxygen mask first. It applies on airplanes and in real life. And this goes far beyond that, the the, like self-care movement. Like it might not be a bubble bath and a mask. You might need something like interpersonal or cognitive behavioral therapy to deal with all of these transitions and stressors for the past year. And, And certainly two weeks from now, we'll talk about it more as it relates to adult mental health there have been immense burdens and shifts in mental health um, for adults over over the past 18 or so months. And and when we're thinking about kids and teens, we have to address our own mental health as well. Um, So shifting from emotional behavioral health to social health, um, in addition to academic functioning, emotional, social functioning is a big piece of mental health. And socializing is one of the basic components to to who we are as humans. Our brains and our bodies, and that's my mom and I, just FYI, if you can't tell that's me, that's me. Um, (laughs) Our brains and our bodies are wired for social responsivity and social exchange and reward. Um, And the early attachment bonds that we have directly impact our ability to regulate stress as well as interact and bond with others throughout life. So we naturally engage in social behavior. And um, one thing that I've noticed, so this is my now seven-year-old Evelyn, um, her bond with Mimi, the elephant, as she had to stop going to kindergarten at the end of last year, her bond with her Mimi really shot through the roof. Mimi went everywhere in the house. She was no longer just existing and living in the bedroom. We Mimi now has beds throughout the house. Mimi has high chairs. Mimi has everything. And it's because my daughter was searching for social connection. And Mimi flourished in her personality development over the pandemic. Um, and, and so we see an innate need for socialization. So much so, we have so many movies in which a person devoid of socialization imbues it into an inanimate object. I mean, I don't know who didn't cry when Tom Hanks yelled out, Wilson, as the the ball floated away. So we seek out isolation or um, in isolation, we seek out investment in social stimulus and certainly being yanked away from socializing for kids has really affected them and their mental health. And we know for instance, that loneliness and prolonged loneliness predicts depression almost a decade out. And so as we are able to socialize a little bit more now, we really want to make sure with kids and teens that we are facilitating their social interactions. Um, I recently had a referral come in uh, for an assessment of autism. And it was, I think the kiddo is 18 months old, really not speaking. Um, But in the office, she was doing all of the social cueing. She's so incredibly social, all of the social queuing that we would expect she's not speaking because she has not had exposure to a lot of people outside of her own home, which is bilingual, which with bilingual kiddos, we often see uh, an initial delay of speech onset and then they like zoom off (laughs) at about 24 months. And so she's, her speech onset is a little bit delayed in part because she's had so little outside world contact. And her mom has experienced intense postpartum depression. And so we see extreme cases like that, as well as kids in our own lives, lack of socializing has really affected them. Um, And what we wanna do is support them moving forward. So kids that may have been very socially apt before the pandemic might need some social reminders and some practice around like, remember when you see your friends, you have to greet them. What are listening skills? How many questions should you ask somebody to get them to kind of open up, to reintroduce yourself to them? And at first we might do activities that are more structured and goal oriented um, like Lego project or um, like an art and a- art activity or a purposeful volunteer experience um, where it's more constrained and goal oriented, um, kind of circumscribed so that there's a pattern to interaction that is goal oriented while we're getting used to socializing again. And certainly kids and teens might need really clear communication about expectations about behavior and socializing in different situations. Um, That means social support is key to addressing intense stress reactions. People, so for instance, in Hurricane Katrina, people who had social support had friends and family that they felt connected to and certainly could could gain resources from, but felt connected to the emotional bond fared significantly better in mental health outcomes. So helping with social support, facilitating social interactions is incredibly important as we move forward. And one thing that we noticed, of course, is that socializing moved online as did school. Um, So, you know, there's been an explosion of screen time and we do as parents and educators, we will have to purposely walk that back um, from where it's at currently. Uh, lots of parents really just survival mode Mode really had to put kids on screen so that they could work and have an income. Um, now we know screen time recommendations <laughs> from the AAP. Um, so yeah, kids, six and up, which means like six to adulthood, uh, two hours or less per day. No one is doing that right now. Certainly not at my house. Um, That's just not even in a realm of possibility. So what can we do? We could readjust. Don't jump into putting all sorts of barriers and boundaries up. One of the best ways we can approach this is to spend a week gathering data on screen use. Um, If you can, just set up your devices to gather the data for you. Or at the end of the day, you can do like screen check-in. How long did you play this game? How long did you play that game? We'll see if you get transparent reports or not. And then kind of think, all right, how is my kid acting that day? How did they sleep that night? Kind of put like some ratings on the side about what screen time might be related to for your child. And before you make adjustments, discuss what you found in your family. I've found that when, when we have the TV on after 8 p.m., it's really hard to transition to bedtime. There seems to be something about getting off screens before bedtime that really seems important to your sleep hygiene. We know scientifically that's the case, but that might be something you notice as well. For some kids, it might be on the days that you spent more than four hours on a screen, It was was behaviorally, it was really difficult and and you had difficulty with really strong emotions. So what do you think is a good amount of time? And and we can have that conversation and not really negotiate, but come to a, what does this new kind of summer reality look like as we shift expectations? We also wanna consider our family routines and values. Um, We might have some purposeful structure about like when, where, and how screens are used. So not at the dinner table, We always recommend keeping screens out of bedrooms and and engaging in screen use in an open and transparent environment um, to keep screen use really healthy, um, as well as sleep hygiene on the table um, and routines around transparency. Um, So we will need to readjust screen time. And I think every household across America is gonna have to do this um, because screens have really taken over as a necessity. But we know that for most kids, there's a tipping point in which too much screen use is, is negatively impacting mental health and emotional social well being. And so of course, we would like to say, <laughs> do as we say, not as we do, but we know human behavior does not work that way. So if you, for instance, have like a tech check-in area, put your own phone and laptop and iPad in that area um, as your child goes to bed. Um, you know, the double screen use, lots of kids are um, doing double screen use where they're watching something up on a TV and then have a device here. You might model not having double devising. And so you can think about what the expectations are in your home and think about how you are going to live and model those expectations as well. And then as we wrap up here, of course, we want to know, okay, We can send these notes to you and you can go through and try all the things. And if you're feeling like it's really demonstrating some anxiety or depression or specific phobias, difficulty socializing, really scared to go back to school in the fall, it might be time to seek the structure of some professional help. And and we should all reach out for those supports um, when we need to. When the difficulties are affecting the child, or the family's functioning, you're finding you can't go places or do things, or you're making so many accommodations and pull, piling those accommodations on um, to address the needs of your child, these new needs, these new mental health needs, that might be time to get extra support. And finally, as we finish up, so we are engaging in post-pandemic parenting as we shift from the emergency realm of this pandemic, to this recovery zone. And research has also pointed to to some bright spots, which is really fantastic. And I think in our mindful and purposeful parenting um, goals, there's room to try and take notice of what positive things or, or things that seem to be working for us do I wanna keep to move forward? So many parents have said, for instance, they've hugged and showed more affection to their children over the course of the pandemic. That's certainly something that is, if it's happening in your household, keep it up. Parents are eating more meals with their kids. There's actually a lot of research that supports eating meals together is correlated with positive, positive not only health behaviors, but mental health um, years down the road. So if you're eating more meals together and that works for you guys, Try to keep that, you um, know, in, in a kind of expected because world was on lockdown. But um, there's actually been less substance use, less arrest and incarceration of youth, and that's really fantastic. We'll just take that one as a feather in our hat for the pandemic for what it is. Um, and then we have been able both educationally and in mental health facilities, been able to provide more services in a flexible way, it's never been easier to get treatment or parent coaching, parent support. You can, as soon as you put your kids to bed, you can log on. Almost everybody's providing telehealth resources. We here at Monarch have always done that because we see a fair amount of high schoolers that transition to college. It's just always always made sense for us to provide telehealth. Um, but we're doing it uh, to percentages through the roof that we're doing it. Um, and I think there'll be a chunk of that that remains because it folds into people's lives easier. So it's never been easier to reach out than it is now. Um, kind of going back to the parenting piece, and it's important that we do that. And certainly, kids who have had access to technology have gained a lot of tech. Um, my six now seven, the one with the elephant, she knows uh, what cross platform integration means. She's trying to explain it to me last week about the different platforms her school uses and how they kind of talk to each other and integrate information. And I was blown away. Um, So in some ways we often we often underestimate um resilience or the things that kids understand. And, And I think It's also great for us to look at our families and say, what have we gained by this experience and look at our kids and what have they learned and how has have their minds expanded because of this experience Um, and to take that in with with the challenges that have occurred, too. So. You know, if you need more resources, we have tons of resources on our website, um, and also, you know, in all the social media outlets. Um, and and I know right now we'll kind of open up for some questions as well, um, and and hopefully we can have a good conversation for a few minutes here.
1: Well, doctor, that was that that was so incredible and uh, a wonderful movement through the different areas. And of course, we're gonna send out if you all can. Um, uh, perhaps, um, uh, Glennis, can you uh, you can get the PowerPoint to Glennis, and then Glennis, you can uh, make sure everybody gets a PowerPoint that needs it. Um, please make sure you just text Glennis your your um, your email, and we'll get those to you if you want to follow it. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna have um, I'm gonna be direct. We're at about eight uh, thirteen. I'm gonna ask Pastor Manisha to offer a couple of questions on behalf of the clergy. And then I'm gonna to turn to some people who are um, uh, psychologists. Um, I know John Buell has worked in, uh, with childhood development. I know Amy Ryberg has been doing enormous amounts of work. Um, and and uh, any of you uh, who also has some, have some perspective on things and then we'll have some questions uh, to, to finish up with. So let's begin with Pastor Manisha.
0: Um, Julie thank you thank you there was there was so much for interestingly for people parents of children of all ages um, so it was very very helpful no matter um, what what age our child is or the children that we know are so thank you for that there were um, so many things I wanted to talk to you about but maybe I'll just highlight a couple um, as uh, I'm thinking about the summertime as we now enter into summertime because School is kind of over, and it kind of ended with a a whimper. You know, I mean it it wasn't really you know fantastic, whether whether you were in person or not. And so now now we're going into the summer into summer camps and there's summer experiences, and um and I'm just I'm just aware of how many changes that are happening. Not just you know with the opening of of our of our um state but summer camps, summer jobs, um, uh, changing of the parents, because now they're no longer necessarily working at home. Mm -hmm. So now kids have to go into daycare and all that sort of stuff. So multiple transitions. What are some words of wisdom you can give to all of us for summertime?
3: Well, I think you're highlighting the words of wisdom in that the kind of schools ender, you know, ended less with a bang, more with a whimper, and that now there's just all these transitions. Oh my gosh. And many people are feeling, um, I did something on NPR last week about this, work reentry anxiety. And so just as school is ending, some parents are experiencing a real uptick in anxiety and going back to the workplace and in-person. Um, and for kids and this summer, it's, it's another transition. It's another, yet another transition. So what I think is helpful for us as parents, um, educators, providers, um, is to look forward ahead to the next big transition that'll be a challenge will be the fall, going back to school, and thinking within kind of those mental health domains of social functioning, emotional functioning, behavioral functioning, um, family functioning, and certainly academic, what what type of supports or activities might help transition my child to next fall? Easiest. Is it just that my kid just needs a lot of physical activity and time off? Do it. Don't be pressured by your neighbor next to you that's signing up for 67 tutoring episodes. Like't don't, don't get stuck in the pressure of what might work for another family. Look at what is working for your kid, what might usher in a great transition. And again, go back to you. Get your oxygen mask out. What do you need to do over this summer that will help provide stability and resilience in your household and in your life? Because you are the central figure to your child's
1: to your child's world. Wow, thank you so much. Um, did you have another question? You said you had about two, Pastor.
0: Um, you know, maybe I'll just ask one more. Um, what about helping um, children with their their siblings or their friends who are in different places than they are. So um, if a if a one of those resilient kids, for instance, um, has a good friend who's anxious, um, what, 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 what advice can we give our kids? I think they're in those
3: situations, whether it's siblings or cousins or friends, um, helping kids understand other people's emotions and perspectives helps them be successful throughout life in myriad ways. And so if we can explain, let's say a kiddo that's not feeling anxious and is one of those like, yes, freedom. And they just have very little anxiety, bless them. um, And they're just running out there and getting right into it to help them stop and understand that, well, you know, um, like Layla has not had, had a play date in over a year and she might feel a little, a little anxious to come over and not know what to play or how to play. So let's make sure that we take deep breaths and we go slow and we listen to what Layla wants uh, so we can help with the socio-emotional perspective and then how to hold somebody's hand in that situation, maybe literally, but also um, certainly proverbially things that we can do to respond to the social and emotional needs of others. And we can coach kids beautifully in those moments.
1: Thanks so much, those are great. We're gonna turn to John Buell and ask him to offer any feedback he had given that he, he has some training in child developmental psychology. But we have to figure out how to get you unmuted, John. Hold on. There we go. There we
4: go, okay. Well, first of all, I want to send you, I don't know if you noticed the sign on my door and send you a gold blue, uh, Julie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was an absolutely excellent uh, presentation and I agree with everything you said. I spent most of my career working in the schools. So I wanted to maybe make a comment about the uh, educational component. Um, we know that there are critical periods when certain skills are learned best. For instance, uh, phonemic awareness, which is kind of understanding the sounds and differences between letters is absolutely critical for learning to read. And if you're in kindergarten, 30 minutes, three times a week will teach you that skill. But if you don't have it by fourth grade, it takes two hours, five days a week to learn that same skill. So with all the disruptions and disruptions, and of course, depending on the amount of disruptions that you listed, I won't go through them again. Um, you may have kids who experience some significant delays and may require some additional services. So I just want you to be aware that not only may you need to uh, request early IEPs for planning skills, but if your child is not receiving those services, you may need to request them. And, uh, you know, you are entitled to a free evaluation in the schools within 30 school days. So... Um, that's something you need to keep in mind if you feel your kids are really suffering. Um, and of course, from a parent point of view, to be patient that some of these kids probably will struggle depending on the amount of disruption. And if I can put in my own question, you mentioned uh, resilience, which we know is a very important skill. What are some of the factors that can lead to greater resilience in kids?
3: Oh, absolutely. I, I First, I can't, One, I echo your go blue. I went to U of M and I love it, but uh, (laughs) our house divided in my house. So I love state too. I have to say, (laughs) Uh, but, (laughs) um, and also echoing your point that if you feel your child, um, you know, is behind and is in those flashpoint moments of development and hasn't gained that skill, please ask for an evaluation. Um, I can't echo that enough kind of that, If kiddos are reluctant or behind in reading by third grade, it it becomes exponentially more difficult to catch up and we want to catch kids early. Um, It's so much easier. Intervention is so much easier and quicker. earlier on, so right. absolutely. And in point, in terms of resilience, and I can actually, in the notes, um, I have a huge, complicated, long, way too many words slide um, that points out risk and resilience factors of stress and trauma. Um, and certainly some resilience factors are that, like kind of what I worked in, in terms of things that we can be doing as parents helping support, things like having a solid identity and group identity, um, low stress and family contact, so again, Get your own support and put on your oxygen mask first um, um, and having housing and food secure, really basic needs met and having positive attachment, positive attachment relationships. And, and that doesn't only mean with parents. It can also mean there's kind of an additive effect if you have like an awesome aunt. Or an awesome uncle or a cousin, a little bit older, where you feel significant caregiver attachment. Those are all positive resilience factors. And certainly, we also kind of going back to exactly what uh, Manisha just, Pastor Manisha just said. When kids can regulate emotion, that's a resilience factor. So teaching coping strategies to re- to rein in and name emotions and cope with them is a point of resilience and helps them be resilient moving forward and when they can also take other people's perspectives that's also a resilience factor so we can coach all of those things for kiddos to help them bounce back
1: thank you i want to turn to amy uh, ryberg and offer her and then after amy we have steven hubrick is on the line Stephen, i don't know if you're joining in or you're here in person but let's go to amy <laughs>
5: I don't see kids in my practice, but I do see teenagers. Um, And I actually just finished talking to a teenager. Teenagers are having problems in different ways. Um, Kids that are shy and socially isolated anyway have welcomed this because it gave them an excuse to avoid school and avoid kids. Um, And I have one girl in particular who they're now afraid of going back to school. So they need all kinds of baby steps and coaching on how they're going to handle going back. Um, I think some kids, girl I just talked to is a graduating senior, they get chipped out of their entire <laughs> senior year. Um, you know, the, the, all the things that were supposed to happen that they've looked for, for, forward to for 12 years did not happen. And the idea of moving off to college without some significant closure is there. So I think whether the school creates it or the family creates it, they need some real closure for, for high school a ceremony a party whatever but they need something rather than it just sort of dropping off the face of the earth um the things i've seen with kids and most of this is coming to an end because school's coming to an end is that they're not they're not regulated they're sleeping till noon they're kind of turning on the computer when they have to you know their parents are not supervising them day and night because kids don't like that level of supervision so they're not really going to school they're even though they know they should get their work done, they're not getting it done. So they're all behind. I think kids need, teenagers need structure. They need a time to get up. They need to show their parents that they got their work done. You know, they don't need to be micromanaged, but they need some level of accountability. Um, They need not to just be drifting in this sort of spaced out, sleepy kind of thing that teenagers tend to do anyway. Um, The other thing I find, I have some patients who are teachers. The teachers are, so burned out, so angry, it's beyond belief because on the one hand they want to support their kids. on the other hand, frankly the parents are being nuts. The parents are not doing their jobs of following through and supervising. so the kids fall behind. things don't happen. The teachers then say everything needs to be in by like tomorrow or you're getting a flunking grade and then it's not in and then the parents are bombarding the teachers with all kinds of letters with you're not you're not fair and what can you do extra for my kid? And the teachers are caught between their desire to help the kid, the pressure from the school districts that you have to do everything under the sun for the kid. And the fact that they have warned the kids, they have reached out to the kids, they have a right to their own lives too. So the teachers are just really in a cranky burned out kind of place and they need support too. They are not simply there to support our kids. They're also people.
1: Just to to sharpen that Amy, uh, uh, would you early on, you said something I thought was really, really key. Um, which is that, in a sense, uh, one thing that, that wasn't covered was, um, you know, our, these kids have had to grieve. Mm-hmm. They've had to grieve these, 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 these rites of passage and that, and the grieve of a loss of the rituals of a year. Um, has there been any study about that or any kind of, I mean, is that a perspective that's helpful to take?
3: I think it is. I think, I think it's, it's helpful to take.
1: Perspective to take,
3: yeah, absolutely, and I think it's incredibly valid, if not one of the most valid kind of lenses to look at all this through for kids and teens. Um, in the, there, to my knowledge, there have not been any large studies on grief in the pandemic, but certainly that's what we're seeing, the grief process. And and Amy, just like you were saying, that lack of closure when we would usually have what we in, in our cultural milieu see as a like closure events. I, I've seen so many teens bridging last year as seniors that have not been able to move out of their parents' houses or their first year of college really did not go as planned. Um, and a lot of it is this unraveling of structure and we know our beautiful frontal lobe is not fully developed till our mid-20s and so that being able to organize themselves it's really asking far too much of teens to get up show up on screen turn on the screen engage and they need more structure and um and and when parents tried to impose that, a lot of conflict occurs in the home. And so families are reeling from that. And then there is this grief process where kids of all ages have lost out on a lot and have lost so much, not, not, a, not least most to mention, I think our state has over 20,000 people that have died. You don't have to look too far in social networks to know somebody that has died from COVID. And so many kids are carrying the grief of things that they've lost out on. Certainly the fear and grief associated with the the mortality of all of
5: this. It's a lot for kids and teens to handle. Absolutely. Kids and teens worry about losing their parents anyway. The minute that they learn about death at four or five, they start worrying about what if you die? What if you're not here for me? Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that's been there. I think the other thing with with kids is that in, in, about not being in school is that they have not maintained their friendships. I mean, the, the people who are they're really close to, they're online with all the time. But part of what school offers is rooms full of 30 kids at a time, 25 kids at a time to interact with that aren't your best friends, aren't people you'd really seek out, but they're part of your daily social milieu. And then all that's been lost.
3: And kids, yeah. some you got to put up with and deal with conflict and deal with. Distress tolerance and tolerating things you find frustrating or annoying, and all of that is so important for development. Absolutely.
1: Let's let's. I want to turn to Stephen, and then I did. There was a question as we make that shift. Uh, Nancy Sparrow said she'd be interested in CE, CEUs, continuing education units. Um, if you can do a, a be, uh, I want to hear from Stephen, and maybe if you can do plugs for. Uh, continuing education units we would love to hear more about that because i think it is something that a lot of people could could use to 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 bone up on stephen do you wanna uh offer just a just a perspective and maybe as a teaser for what we're gonna have on um in uh, june twenty second
6: sure well uh, just a couple of comments and first off i i julie thanks for such a great presentation and uh and all that's been said here i think is so important uh, just a few reflections, you know, and I'm I'm reflecting both on my kind of personal experience with my daughters, but also clinically in my practice with uh, a patient who struggled with his daughters. And, you know, I think one of the things to point out is that there are really significant differences in some kids in terms of their ability to cope and manage with these things. So, you know, some kids and, and, you know, like my one daughter is very uh, reactive to the lack of of the structure and has had a tremendous time. The other daughter has struggled, but not as much. The same is true with this patient that I see. Um, Similar kind of thing, where there's just really notable individual differences. They're kind of tied into the child's temperament and and sort of their kind of some fundamental ways in which they kind of biologically regulate emotion and affect. and, and I guess with the point about grief, um, I was thinking about that too, in particular, particularly with this one patient, um, because the the children had lost a mother during the pandemic and not COVID-related. Um, but you know how they're struggling with grief and loss, and that it's compounded with what what they've lost out in school, but then also in their family. Um, I think the the other thing quickly I would just add is that. Um, this is a chronic and going to be a very long-standing problem. If you think about our children as work in progress, it's, you know, you think about like if you make the analogy of building a home and you have the blocks and the the foundation, you start building it out. And um, these kids have lost blocks in the foundation and um, that makes the structure weak. And I think we need to really appreciate that on a long, long long-term basis because they're going to struggle for a long time, and I think uh, Julie's comments about that were so important that we we need to think about the long term effects of this and how we uh, can be supportive and encouraging of kids and helping them get the help they need socially, emotionally, and educationally. Because it's 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 not over. I think the work on this is really starting. Last thing, just as a teaser, um, you know, for in a couple of weeks, I. Uh, I, you know we will be talking about this more at the kind of with adults and how um how sort of the adult community and population has struggled with mental health and then sort of issues and concerns about returning um into everyday life post pandemic and so uh i hope um uh, many of you will be able to participate in that as well
1: and we should probably stop at this point it's 8:32 uh, we we went this was a beautiful full um full presentation, and I'm going to ask Pastor Manisha to close us in prayer.
0: Thank you, Dr. Brakazuski, for your gifts and your graces. The Lord be with you all. Let's pray. Holy Almighty God, our children are your children you created them in your image, you love them, you sustain them with your, your bountiful grace and mercy, you help them in their wayward ways, you give them parents um, with, with many, many gifts and some flaws. And you say to each one of us, you are beloved, no matter what you go through, I will be with you, I will care for you, I will provide for you, you will suffer, and I will be there, you will struggle." and I will care for all your needs. You will hurt, and I will bring you some peace. So we thank you, God, for being our constant companion through the pandemic, through schools, through all the anxiety, through the pain in our homes, through the joy in our homes, and even when we were at the table doing those puzzles. Thank you for being there. Thank you for Dr. Braciszewski and her wisdom, her grace, her humor, and above all, her deep desire to serve you through her gifts. And may you grace us all, and may you take care of our children so they may grow into the full stature that they were called to be. In Christ's name, amen.
1: Thank you so much, Pastor. Thank you so much, everybody. I know um, there are questions to ask I think the CEU uh, question, maybe we can address that uh, unless you had something, a standing program, uh, Dr. Julie. Um, and, and I, I don't know
3: for, I don't know what the requirements are for social workers. You can um, you can submit it and submit kind of the time. Um, as well, as the program to- it counts as a CE, but I'm not sure for um, uh, licensed social workers it like what counts it doesn't count because that's not
1: part of my licensure yeah.
3: requirements. Uh, so I'm not uh, sure. Just, one of those I,
1: things, I I, it, it's a, something it's a to explore, I think, in many, many domains. So we, we'll work on that a little bit. Um, thank you all for being here. Why don't we have Dr. Julie and the clergy and Glenna stay on and the rest of you. will. We'll see you all
0: the 22nd. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at christchurchcranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.